Good morning, ARC family and friends. So good to be with you this morning, thinking about God's word and worshiping him. I'm so happy to have this opportunity to press into the Lord's presence and to hear from him through his word. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And as you turn there, let me offer a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do pray, speak to us by your spirit. Speak to us by your word. And Holy Spirit, we pray, illumine our minds, give us understanding, give us light and wisdom from the Word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, empower us to witness for you, to witness for Christ, to make the Father's glory known. Feed us by the Word, give us spiritual strength, and use us, we pray, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, we come to the fifth and final sermon in our series that we've called Strange Time, Same Mission. Uh, this is a series that we do or have done each year uh, in our five or six years as a church. We do it at the, at the beginning of the new year as a way of reorienting ourselves to our mission and reorienting ourselves to the objectives that come beneath that mission. And so if you've been tuning in with us, you know already that our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So that's what we want to do. We want to see people come to know Jesus and learn how to follow Jesus right here in our neighborhood and as far away as the ends of the earth. Now, we pursue that mission with five objectives. Number one, we want to share the message of the gospel. That was our first sermon. Number two, we want to show the mercy of God to our neighbors. So we want to share the gospel. We want to show mercy. Number three, we want to seek to mature. We want to shepherd each other to maturity in Christ. That simply means that as Christians, we want to grow. We want to conform to the image and the likeness of Jesus, our Savior. Number four, which we considered last week, is we want to seek to multiply leaders and churches. And so we want to be a church that, in the spirit of 2 Timothy 2.2, who we, we find faithful people, we train them and trust them with the teaching of the Word of God, that they might also find faithful people uh, and train and entrust them with the Word. So the ministry is a relay race. And, and we want to see other churches planted that preach the same gospel, or committed to the same Bible, uh, and committed to their neighborhoods. And so we want to multiply. Well, finally, our fifth M is missionaries. We want to send missionaries to the end of the earth. So when you think about our mission statement from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe, last week was kind of four corners of the block. We want to multiply in our neighborhood. This week is the four corners of the globe. We want to see the gospel exported to the ends of the earth. And to think about that, we want to look to Acts chapter 13, where, um, biblically speaking, um, international missions gets its start. So we're going to look at a scene, the very first scene, where God called two persons to become missionaries, to leave where they were and to cross cultures, to cross national lines, um, to cross language lines, to take the gospel to people who didn't know Jesus, and to plant churches 
um, among those people who come to faith in Christ. And we want to observe five things uh, as we look at this text. So look with me at, in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Short three verses there, lots of riches for us to consider. I want to raise up sort of five things for us as a church to understand and know about missions, and along the way, perhaps point out some mind shifts that the Lord would have us make as we seek to be a faithful missionary sending congregation. Here's the first point for you. It's the local church that sends missionaries. It's the local church that sends missionaries. We see that in verse 1. See there it says, now there was in the church. Now today, by God's grace, we have all kinds of mission-sending agencies. We have denominational agencies. We have parachurch agencies that um, examine and qualify and train, that send and support missionaries on the field, and praise God for them. But from the beginning, sending and supporting missionaries was the work of the local church. Not an agency or denomination, but the church. The local church is then the means and the ends of missions. When I say the local church is the means of missions, I mean that's the method, that's the way you get missions done. When I say the local church is the end of missions, I mean it's the goal also, the purpose for which we send missionaries into cultures and places where the gospel is not known is not simply so that individuals would come to faith in Christ. It is that. But that those individuals then will be formed into congregations and the gospel church would be established in those places among those peoples. So the church is the way you do missions and the church is the goal of missions. When you read the New Testament, you're really reading a lot of it missionary literature. Think, for example, of 3 John, which was read for us earlier in the service. That whole letter is really talking about faithful brothers who were traveling from place to place preaching the gospel, uh, and that church there being supportive of them and making sure their needs were met. It's basically a missions letter. Or think of many of Paul's letters in the New Testament. How often in those letters he gives people churches updates on how his mission, his ministry is going and how often he's talking with them about his needs and um, the needs of the other churches and things of that sort. It's, it's basically um, first century missionary support letters. So the whole literature of the New Testament, particularly the letters, is really the literature of missions. It's the literature of people taking the gospel to unknown places and establishing the church in those places. Now, churches today have gotten away from this. We've gotten so far away from this 
that many churches have come to think of missions as kind of an optional extra. You know, we talk about churches um, that sort of have a heart for missions, right? And we think of that as a kind of peculiar uh, emphasis that they have. And we sort of tend to think of churches as having the ability to decide their own vision and their own mission and their own sort of emphases independent of what the Bible teaches us about the, the nature of the church. And so missions becomes an, an optional extra. But, but here's the truth. If missions is an optional extra in your church, you might not be in a true church. If missions is something that a local congregation can take or leave, it might be a people that God could take or leave. I love the way Ed Stetzer puts it. He says, it's not that God's um, church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. In other words, the sort of big umbrella is not the church. The big umbrella is missions. That's the, that's the aim. That's the driving force um, for God's people in the world. And the way that mission gets carried out is through the local church. It's that God's mission has a church. And for a church to be on the same mission, as we say in the title of the sermon series, the same mission that goes all the way back to the, the first century church, it has to have sending missionaries as a part of its identity and a part of its activity. And for a Christian to be a healthy Christian, that individual Christian also um, needs to have missions as a central aspect of their spiritual life. They need to pray for missionaries. They need to give to um, the local church in support of missionaries. Perhaps they need to give directly to, to missions agencies or individuals that they support. And they need to leave, live a, a missional lifestyle, a lifestyle that's aimed at making sure the gospel is going to the four corners of the block and the four corners of the globe. So how about you? Do you need a, a mind shift here? Does cross-cultural missions need to be a more central aspect of how you think about your Christian life? Of how you think about what it means to follow Jesus? Does mission need a, a higher profile in our local church? Because it is the church that sends missionaries. Which brings us to a second observation from this text. It's local churches in surprising places that send missionaries. There's local churches in surprising places that send missionaries. Look at that, the next word there in verse 1. Now, they were in the church at Antioch. At Antioch. Well, what do we know about Antioch? Well, it's actually a name that was given to a number of cities in the first century world at that time. There are a couple of Antiochs in the, in the New Testament that are pretty prominent. Uh, one of them is Antioch Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch, which is being discussed here. Now, both of those places, both of those Antiochs are in Turkey, what we call modern-day Turkey, uh, in the Mediterranean world there. Uh, and, and Antioch Pisidia was a city of some significance in the first century, during the time that this was written. It is a city that uh, had been rebuilt by Rome. It is a city where a lot of Roman leaders and generals came from. In fact, when it was rebuilt by Rome, it was settled by two Roman legions. 
Uh, and so it was a city that had a reputation for producing military leaders and being home to military leaders. And it was a city that had a reputation for producing governors. And some of the first members of the Roman Senate came from Pisidian Antioch. And so it was a place where people moved to. Uh, it was a place where people went for a better life, so to speak. It's a place where many cultures interacted and many peoples from many places interacted. And so it's not surprising then that, that Antioch becomes one of the early centers of Christianity in the ancient world. So there's not just Jerusalem, but there begin to be these sort of major cities of Christian activity like Antioch. And what's interesting is, by this point in the early church history, by this point in Acts, it's not Jerusalem that is the seat of revival. It's Antioch, this largely Gentile city where the gospel is gone. Now to see that, um, look with me real quickly a couple chapters earlier in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Persecution has arisen, uh, and that's what's driving a lot of Christians to places like Antioch. And notice how now Antioch becomes this thriving place of revival. And then by the time we get to chapter 13, this place of uh, surprising missions activity. Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now that last line there gives you a sense of how important Antioch was becoming in sort of shaping uh, the, the notion of, of Christianity there. And so much so that it's in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians, where we get our name from, so to speak, as a religious movement. And it's in Antioch that you see people being added to the Lord through faith, through the preaching. And in Antioch, where you see that the gospel is being preached to the nations, to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking and the, uh, the Greek persons of that area. Now, if you're drawing up a playbook for missions in the first century, chances are that play doesn't begin with shifting uh, the sort of development of Christianity over to a largely Gentile city and running missions from that place. Chances are we probably would sit down and say, okay, we need to get things right in Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, we send things out to the other parts of the world. Now, that happened in some way. But actually, things really pick up here in this city founded or rebuilt by Rome, among Romans, Roman soldiers the very people, types of people, who had beaten 
and put Jesus to death, who, humanly speaking, had been the threat that stamped out, so they thought, the Jesus movement in the first years of the gospel. We probably wouldn't start there, but that is precisely where God starts. That's where he begins to um, begins the, the missionary movement right in the heart of Gentile power. It's striking. It's surprising. I think what this means is we should never rule out any place, any place, however significant or however seemingly insignificant, as a place for missionary energy and activity. Once it was a surprising place like Antioch here in the first century world. Centuries later, it would be surprising places like a little island nation called England or uh, Ireland. The, the first missionary to leave the United States, surprisingly, is a former slave, George Lyle, who goes to Jamaica and preaches the gospel in Jamaica and establishes Baptist churches in, in, in Jamaica decades before Adoniram Judson leaves to Burma to start missions there. And do you know where the, the sort of most missionary activity comes in the world today? You might be surprised. A few years ago, Christianity Today did an article where they sort of reviewed the, the top 10 missionary sending countries in the world. Now, the United States was ranked number one, 127,000 missionaries going out from the U.S. And that, that in part has to do with size. But you know who the other countries were? There were countries that um, sort of wouldn't be on the radar as kind of the center of Christian missionary activity. Countries like Brazil, South Korea, India, South Africa, the Philippines, Mexico, China, Colombia, and Nigeria. American Christians are, we're sometimes too focused on America, aren't we? Uh, the church is global, and some of the best work happening in missions is happening in the global south and happening in other parts of the world who were once thought to be missions-receiving countries but are now missionary-exporting countries. The work of missions takes place in local churches, and sometimes local churches in very surprising, surprising places. So what about Anacostia? Why can't Anacostia be one of the surprising places from which fresh missionary zeal and energy comes from? Why can't the next Paul or Barnabas not come from Mercy of Christ or Congress Heights Community Church or Anacostia River Church? Why can't Anacostia be remembered next to Antioch as a place where things kicked off in global missions? And my shift we need is a shift from thinking that missions kind of only happens in the expected places of religious tradition to thinking and understanding that Missions happens in surprising places among God's local churches, neighborhoods like ours. Do we have faith enough to believe that God would be pleased to stir up a revival in cross-cultural missions 
from a 92% African-American neighborhood, mainly or primarily poor neighborhood in Southeast Washington, D.C. See, it's local churches in surprising places that send missionaries to the end of the earth. And we want ARC and Mercy of Christ and Congress Heights Community Church, by God's grace, to be such places. Now, my question for you is, do you, do we have faith in God for that? This brings us to a third observation from this text. The local church should send its best people to the mission field. The local church should send some of its best people and leaders to the mission field. Now, let's look together again at all of verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, that's, a, that's an all-star team of leaders right there. That's the, that's the 95, 96 Bulls with like 72 wins, or the 2015, 2016 Golden State Warriors with, with 73 wins. That, that's, a, that's an all-star team. It's stacked. It's gifted. There are prophets and teachers there. It's a diverse team. Paul and Barnabas, of course, are Jewish. Simeon is nicknamed Niger. It's from the Latin word, which means black or dark, but he's a brother. Lucius is from Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in Libya in North Africa. And with a name like Lucius, he's probably black too. <laughs> and then there's Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of the Tetrarch, uh, Herod. The word translated there, lifelong friend, could also be translated as foster brother. Uh, it was typical in that day for royal families, children in royal families, to have kind of close playmates who are a part of the household. It seems that Manan would have been that from, from birth, basically, lifelong, with Herod. So we have here an interesting collection of people. There's someone like Manan with royal connections. Then we have people from the diaspora, from, from North Africa and Libya. And we got Jewish persons who've been steeped in Jewish uh, religion and culture. This is a cross-cultural team of prophets and teachers leading a growing and dynamic church in a prominent Roman city. Now, today, we would hate to break up such a team, wouldn't we? I mean, we, we, we like dynasties, most of us. We, we, we want to see dynasties last. I mean, nobody wants the bulls to be broken up. Nobody wanted the Golden State Warriors to be split up and traded off. When it's good and it's thriving, we like to keep it kind of settled and together. So if you land in a solid church with preaching and teaching that you like and fellowship and community that you enjoy, there becomes this kind of resistance to the idea that anyone should leave or anyone should, should move about, especially leaders. If you're under great teaching, you, you don't want to see your teachers go serve some other body. There's a kind of comfort-seeking and a kind of um, possessiveness that can grow up in our hearts, which is the enemy of mission's zeal. 
But in this text, notice now, the church in Antioch sends two of its very best leaders away on mission. They're going to leave Antioch and travel the known world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting churches. Think of the selflessness, the selflessness of a church giving up someone like Barnabas. This is the same Barnabas who came to Antioch on behalf of the apostles to see if the gospel had really reached Antioch. And when he got there, you remember, he encouraged them and affirmed them. This is what we read in Acts 11, 23 and 24. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. That's the character, that's the quality of Barnabas that the church in Antioch is, is sending away to serve someplace else. And not just Barnabas, but, but also Saul. This is the same Saul who will become the Apostle Paul. And he and Barnabas are going to travel as the first missionary team, and he's going to be responsible for establishing churches all over the place, and he's going to write most of the New Testament. This same Saul, who would become Paul, will become the church's first great theologian, writing the scriptures and the Bible for us. That's what they're giving up. I mean, Antioch just is about to send away Jordan and Pippin. They're about to send away Clay and Steph. They're going to send away two of the, one of the strongest duos in the history of the Christian church in their prime. Barnabas represents mature, established, affirming leadership. That's how he shows up in the scripture. And Paul, at this point, represents kind of potential that, that, is, that has like no limit, has like no ceiling. He, he represents the, the greatness of gospel mission that, that is about to be unfolded, that's about to flower. So this is the thing. The local church must be glad to send its best people in the cause of global missions. Must be glad to do it. Let's be honest now. Sometimes Christians and churches are, are happy to send people that we, we have little regard for, right? We're happy to send people that um, we don't know all that well or to send people that maybe a little bit socially awkward, but they love missions. Okay. Uh, we'll send them. But we, we, we often want to hold on to tightly people who have really edified us, people who have built us up, people who have shepherded us and taught us God's word, and, and people who have encouraged us and uh, affirmed us in the faith. Those are folks that we tend to sort of want to clutch on to. We want to clench our fingers on. But those are the very people in this text that have been given away by Antioch for the work of global missions. You see, this church is able to do this because this church understands that they're trying to get a win for Team Jesus, not just Team Antioch Local Church. They have a global, cross-cultural concern for the spread of the gospel. So we want to have that same kind of generosity. We want to have that same kind of zeal to see even our best people go 
for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the nations, to establish churches. And so that becomes a question for us. Are we as a church willing to do that? Are we willing to uh, encourage, support, and send our best leaders and our best members um, to, to far-flung places to do the work of planting churches and evangelizing people who don't yet know the Lord? Local churches should send their best people. Which brings us to a fourth observation. Missions is rooted in worship. Gospel missions is really rooted in the worship of God. Now look with me in verses 2 and 3. First part of verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And then in verse 3 we read, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now here's, here's what I see, I want you to see from these verses. That before, verse 2, and apparently during and after, verse 3, before, during, and after, God calls Barnabas and Saul to the mission field, the church and its leaders were caught up in a life of worship. They worshiped, which probably means they, they sang and praised God and, and lived and served, lived for and served God. They, they fasted, which is a way of, of sort of um, pushing out distractions so that we could be um, better focused on, on God and commune with him. And they prayed, which is talking with God and hearing from God. They were actively worshiping and praising and praying and fasting in service of the Lord. In other words, now see this, their call to missions flowed from their communion with God. They were not at a special missions conference. They were not having uh, missions emphasis week at the church. They were not pouring over some strategic plan about how to grow the church. You get the sense that all of this happened as they simply and faithfully sought to be in the presence of God. And here's how I put it. The closer we get to God, the farther we'll go for God. The closer we get to God in fellowship and communion, the farther we will go for God in mission and witness. There's something about worship that propels mission. John Piper famously put it this way in the opening line of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, his book on missions. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Now what it meant there was that there are people in the world who don't know Jesus, and so they don't worship him. And so they are lost in their sin and in danger of eternal judgment. And, and, and God has then appointed missions as the solution to that problem because in missions, we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people in faith that they would hear the gospel and believe in Jesus and then begin to worship Jesus as they were made to. So Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. But I wonder if there's not a corollary. I wonder if there's not an opposite truth here. I wonder if there's not a negative side to that statement that is something like this. 
missions does not exist because the church does not worship. That missions does not exist as it ought to because the church does not worship God as she ought to. Now, by worship, I do not mean a Sunday morning service. There are churches all over the place, packed Sunday morning services, packed online um, services, and so on. Now, by worship here, and the example of the early church, what I mean is the daily seeking after God to simply enjoy God himself. The daily seeking after God in order to enjoy God himself. So by worship here, I mean communion with God, a, a sharing in the presence and the person of God, which is our right and our inheritance as Christians. Now, that's, there's a difference between communion and, and sort of public worship, right? There are all kinds, or there can be a lot of worshipers, but surprisingly little communion. We can be very busy doing the, the outward things of public worship and yet not have an abiding relationship and fellowship with God much at all. So missions flows from communion. It comes from fellowship with God. It flows out of a heart that puts away distraction, that's fasting, flows out of a, a heart that, that seeks to, to talk with God, that's prayer. It, it flows out of a heart to, to really bow before God and enjoy Him. That's, that's worship. So, so missions flows out of a heart that puts away distraction and presses into the presence of the Lord and sits there. When we enjoy God, we start to enjoy what God enjoys. One thing God enjoys is seeing sinners come to repentance and worship Him. So then, if we enjoy God and we begin to enjoy what God enjoys and God enjoys missions, we too then should, as a consequence of enjoying God, come to enjoy missions. See his name made great among the nations. And so here's the question. Do we commune with God? Do we truly fellowship with him? How much of our spiritual life is dedicated to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? How much of our spiritual activity reflects what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And this is why in that same psalm, Psalm 16, verse 8, the psalmist says, I sit the Lord before me daily. Because it's in that communion that we discover joy. And it's in that communion that we begin to be all the things that God has called us to be, including missionaries or missionary-sending people. 
to do you commune with God? Are we a church that communes with God? Is that reflected in our heart for missions? A fifth observation from this text, and finally, missions is guided by the Holy Spirit. Missions is guided by the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is sometimes called the, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I've always liked that title. Because when you read the book of Acts, almost every page, every chapter, there's a reference to the Holy Spirit doing certain things through the apostle and through the church. And so we're getting a record of the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And notice in verses 2 and 4 that it is God the Holy Spirit who guides the work of missions. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We'll jump down to verse 4. So being set out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, I know some of y'all are nervous about any talk of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's activity in the church. And uh, I know on the other side, there's some of y'all that blame the Holy Spirit or assign to the Holy Spirit um, credit for any time the wind blows on your skin. Uh, it, it's possible to go too far in both directions. It's possible to either deny the Spirit's presence and work in the church altogether, or it's possible to be claiming that the Holy Spirit did or said almost anything that, that comes to somebody's mind. But between those two extremes, between those two poles, we have to recognize that to be a Christian and to be a Christian church is a supernatural reality. It's not just natural. It is, in fact, supernatural. God lives in his people. We have become the temple of God uh, who lives in us through the Holy Spirit. First, first, Timothy, first Corinthians 3, 16 and 1 Corinthians 6 teach us. The Spirit of God really does live in us and really does, really does work in us and really does work through us. So, for example, he interacts with his church here. We don't know all the ins and outs of it, but the text says here that the Spirit said. He spoke to the church. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like. The Holy Spirit said to the church, was it a, a loud voice that all the leaders could hear? Or was it a, a strong, quiet impression made on the mind, made on the soul, that still quiet voice? I don't know. But, but this text says God talks to his church. And we need to believe that. And God, the Holy Spirit, leads his church in this text onto the mission field. Now take from this that the, the local church then today should be seeking the Holy Spirit's influence and empowerment in the work of missions. We should seek the Holy Spirit's influence and empowerment in at least two ways. First, we should seek the Holy Spirit's influence and empowerment in discerning a call in discerning a call to the mission field. Notice in verse 2, it is the Holy Spirit who has called Barnabas and Saul to the work that he has set aside for them. 
Now, what's really interesting about this text in verse 2 is that the text says that the Spirit spoke to all the leaders there. The Holy Spirit didn't just speak to Barnabas and Saul. All the leaders there in that church heard the Spirit's voice, heard the word of the Lord. That's important because it keeps us from investing authority in our private, personal experience. People are fond of saying, the Holy Spirit told me to do this, the Holy Spirit told me to do that, God, God led me to do this or that. Maybe he did. But did he tell anybody else? Did the Spirit of the Lord confirm your calling through the, the leaders and the congregation that you're a part of? A calling has two parts. It has a, a personal subjective part, but it also has a, a corporate objective part that comes from others who hear the same thing from the Lord. That's what happens here with Barnabas and Saul. So, beloved, don't live as if your personal experience is your final authority. Live with the word of God as your authority and test your experiences with the word and with the leaders of your church when it comes to a calling to ministry. This is especially necessary before thrusting ourselves into the mission field. And here's the second thing. We should seek the Holy Spirit's influence and empowerment in sending us to specific locations to do the work. That's what I infer from the historical example in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia and, and various places. Let God determine where you're going to go. It's interesting that verse 3 says, the church laid hands on them and the church sent them out. But verse 4 says, it's the Spirit who sent them. That's not a contradiction. The Holy Spirit who lives in us does his work normally through us, through the church. This is why if we're waiting from, for some uh, extraordinary thing to happen, for the sky to split and a scroll to come down or, or some such thing. This is why if we're waiting for that, we may actually be missing the ongoing regular work of the Spirit in our life and in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit normally does His work through His Word and through His church. The reason we call miracles miracles is because they're not everyday things. And the reason we call some things extraordinary is because they are more, they are extra, they are over the ordinary. So if we're busy looking for a miracle or busy looking for the extraordinary, that means by definition, we won't see God's hands in the ordinary, in an ordinary walk of our Christian lives. And that ordinary walk is still a supernatural walk, beloved. See, sometimes we quench the spirit because we don't like the ordinary. And we think our ordinary is natural instead of supernatural. The Holy Spirit of God ordinarily works through the church of God to send and empower missionaries. So we should seek that influence. We should seek his influence as we worship and as we fellowship with the Lord. 
So when we talk about missions here at Anacostia River Church, let us understand that what we're talking about is the kind of communion or fellowship with God that propels us under the influence and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel around the world to people who don't know Jesus but need to. That's why we exist. We take the gospel from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. Now, you may be listening to this and you're not a Christian. And there may be two things, at least, that cause you to hesitate as you listen to this sermon. First, you may be put off by the idea that if you follow Jesus and put your faith in Jesus, that God may make you a missionary and send you off to the, the jungles of Peru or something might take you out of the life that you're comfortable with and send you to a hard life, a rough life, someplace else with all, without the amenities that you, you appreciate. And secondly, as you listen to this, you, you may be puzzled by talk of the Holy Spirit and of the Trinity. Now, regarding God sending someone to a jungle or some difficult place, he might. He might. More than that, he has a right to. God made you. You didn't make yourself. And because God made you, he owns you and has a right to do with your life what he wishes. Now, that might sound oppressive to you, but it's really a critically important idea that you understand if you're going to be saved from God's judgment and follow Jesus in a way that pleases the Lord. You see, our fundamental problem with God is that we have been trying to live by our own desires, to serve our own needs. And in doing that, we have rejected God's ownership of our life and God's right to rule our life. That's what the Bible calls sin. And it's a personal offense to God. So your basic problem and my basic problem is that we don't submit to God as Lord. Being hesitant to go on the mission field, I wonder if you thought about this, is just one simple example of that deep spiritual rebellion called sin that's in the human soul. If, that's, if this rebellion goes on, causes us to turn away from God. It's this rebellion that alienates us from God and that angers God. Now, the second issue you may have is this issue of the Trinity. Now, that, that might seem to you to be the Trinity, too complex and convoluted an idea. You might be like, if there's one God, how can the Father be God, and how can the Son be God, and how can the Holy Spirit be God, um, why wouldn't God just make it simple and, and, and not confusing? I often hear my Muslim friends and neighbors talk this way as they reject the Trinity. Well, those are understandable questions. But let me answer it in two simple ways. And I know these answers won't satisfy all of your concerns or curiosities, but I want to answer it in these two simple ways in order to help you to see what's really at stake in your question. Okay? So the first way I want to answer is this way. 
the fact that God is too complex for you and me to totally comprehend or understand him is just another way of saying that God is bigger than us. That God is bigger than us. If you and I could understand everything about God, that would pretty much make us God, wouldn't it? Wouldn't we have an intellect, a mind bigger than God, if we could understand everything about God? Well, it's if God is God, it's necessary that there be some things about him that are a mystery to us, that we can't fathom, because we are limited creatures, and he is an infinite being. Right? So if you admit that there is an infinite being in the universe who created all there is, then why shouldn't his very essence, his very person, be something that's infinitely beyond our understanding? And that's what the Trinity is. It's mystery. It's not irrational. It's not contradictory. There is one God who exists in three persons. Each person is fully God. And yet there is one God. We will be trying to understand that for all of eternity. And that is worthy of a God who is infinite. Well, here's the second thing I want to say. Um, if you wait to understand everything before you follow God, you will never follow God. Understanding will become an idol. It will be something in the place of God that's really kind of ruling you. So the first point, we're just admitting we can't understand everything about an infinite God. There's some things even about his person that is well beyond us. And the second thing, what I'm trying to suggest to you is, okay, if that's true, then we can't sort of um, say, hey, I won't follow Jesus until I understand, because there's always going to be things you do not understand. You tracking with me? So, so we need to accept the Trinity, not because we understand it all, but because that's how God reveals himself. That's what he has told us he is like. And our entire salvation depends upon God being triune. Well, why do I say that? Well, first, because it's the Father who appoints us to salvation. And it's the Son who accomplishes our salvation by living a perfect life and dying for our sins and being raised from the grave. And it's the Holy Spirit who applies that salvation to us through faith. So the Father appoints, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. That's the teaching of Ephesians chapter 2, for example. And if there is no Trinity, if one of those persons isn't God, if one of those persons in the Godhead isn't doing that, there is no salvation. If the Father doesn't appoint us to salvation, we can't be saved. If the Son doesn't die for our sins on the cross and isn't raised from the grave three days later, we cannot be saved. And if the Holy Spirit does not make us alive in, in conversion and give us the grace to repent and to believe, we cannot be saved. Biblically speaking, all of salvation depends upon God being exactly who he said he is, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person in the Trinity doing their part for our redemption. So, if you're listening to this and you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to do three things. Number one, recognize your sin. Recognize your sin. That even in admitting a temptation to refuse to go to the mission field, you are going your own way and rejecting God's rule. Number two, recognize your limitation. Recognize your limitation. By admitting that God is infinitely bigger than you know, you must admit that there are some limits to your knowledge. And you must admit that there's, there's a limitation. In fact, there's an inability for you to save yourself from God's judgment. Number three, recognize your Savior. Recognize your Savior. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only Savior who has come into the world in human form to die for our sins, to be punished for our sins, and to be raised from the grave as an acceptable sacrifice to God. He's the only one who has done that. So that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and brought back to God, not as people fearing judgment, but as people who have been accepted by God through faith in Christ. He is the only Savior. You must recognize him as that. You must put your faith in him as your Savior. And you must follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. Because Jesus is Lord. Well, he's the promise that everyone who does that, everyone who recognizes their sin, everyone who recognizes their limitations before God, that he is God and we are not, and everyone who comes to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us who believe will be saved, will be rescued from judgment, will be rescued from hell, and we will live with God forever in his love. That could be you right now. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. To help you do that is why we exist as a church. This mission is why we're even recording this service and, and trying in some way to get this gospel to people despite a pandemic that has separated the world into their rooms. We love God. We love what God loves. God loves you. God wants you to come to know him through faith in his son. Put your faith in him and live. And church family, let us be about this mission. Let us be about this same old mission that goes all the way back to Antioch and has come all the way down to Anacostia. Let's be about sending missionaries, supporting missionaries. Let's be about giving our best to this work. Let's be about worshiping the Lord until we burn with passion for this mission, and let's be guided by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your call upon our lives, for the mission that has given birth to the church. And we thank you for allowing us the privilege, really, of proclaiming Jesus until he comes. Lord, we pray that you would just make us zealous to do it, that you would bear great fruit through it, 
and that your name would be exalted in all the earth. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.